Hello and welcome to another exciting and jam-packed, that's right, jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. I'm your host, Danny Lobel, and I've got an exciting episode for you today. I've got Dana Gould on the show. Dana Gould, a very funny comic who I've known for many years and I've been aware of for many years. And I've talked to on my old show and we caught up at last year's Bird City Comedy Festival in Phoenix, Arizona. And we had this very nice, very intimate talk in his hotel room. He really opened up, and it's a very interesting conversation. I hope you'll find it very interesting. I found it very interesting. I thought he was very sincere, very forthcoming, and he allowed himself to be very vulnerable. Before I get into that, I want to tell you I have three shows in this year's Hollywood Fringe Festival, which is going on currently. I already did one. There are three more, and I'm running my show Broke is a Joke, which I'm taking to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. But if you live anywhere near Southern California, if you can make it out, Please come and attend one of these shows. The shows are this coming Thursday, June 8th at 10.30 p.m., this coming Saturday, June 10th at 11.30 p.m., and then the next night, which is Sunday, June 11th at 8 p.m. And they're all at the Sacred Fools Theater in Hollywood, California. It's only 10 bucks. It's at 1078 Lillian Way. The info is all at hollywoodfringe.org, or you could go to moderndayphilosophers.net where I have a link up directly to it. You'll see the poster for the show. Just click the poster, and you can go right there and get tickets for the show. And I also put up a link to the GoFundMe if you're able to help out for uh, for Edinburgh. I'm trying to raise the money for that. And also, uh, I linked up uh, if you want to get Seasons 1 and 2. It's all there on the site. Updated. I'm on my game. We're doing it. So please, again, if you're around, come out and see me at the Hollywood Fringe Festival. Say hello afterwards. Let me know that you're there from listening to this show. I'd love to meet you, and uh, and please do come. Broke is a joke at the Hollywood Fringe Festival, hollywoodfringe.org, or go to moderndayphilosophers.net and click the blue poster that says on it, Broke as a Joke. Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday night, three shows. Come and see me. All right. Today's show is brought to you by Stand Up Records. Let's take a listen to a word from them. Warning. Last year, over 40,000 Americans died in car-related accidents. Not a pleasant thought, is it? In fact, as thoughts go, it's downright depressing. Well, that's where we can help cheer you up. We're StandUpRecords.com, and we offer the finest in CDs, DVDs, downloads, and merchandise from the best comedians on Earth. Artists like Mark Marin, Maria Bamford, Eddie Pepitone, and Doug Stanhope. Available at fine record stores, Amazon.com, and the iTunes Music Store. That's StandUpRecords.com. Come on, listen to us while you're driving. Live dangerously. Stand Up Records. The brand you know, the brand you love. A fantastic... Fantastic label indeed. And word is that my album, Nicest Boy in Barcelona, will be coming out from that label in one month. So I'll let you know how to get it by next episode. Hopefully you'll be able to pick it up. And this show is also brought to you by a fantastic sponsor, which is very close to my heart. Are you under 18 years old and struggling with substance abuse, addiction, mental health or behavioral health disorders? If not you, then maybe somebody you know is. Unfortunately, it's fairly common. The real tragedy is that people don't even know where to go for the proper treatment that they desperately need. Well, now there's good news. There is a place that offers this help, and it does so with the highest level of evidence-based, comprehensive, individualized treatment programs for maximum healing. Located in beautiful Malibu, California, Centered Health is a rehab facility that truly cares. 
They offer an incredible variety of treatments and individualized care that is tailored to the unique nature and experience of each one of their clients. An in-house executive chef, a swimming pool, a tennis court, a library, a rec room, and more are available in this huge Malibu estate overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Their diverse team of experienced psychologists and psychiatrists work round the clock and encourage clients to express their thoughts and feelings through daily journaling and embracing new options, experiences, and open-minded views. Their holistic approach provides many innovative therapy groups, including surfing, meditation, music, and my group, which is podcasting. That's right. I've been doing a group at Centered Health, doing some amazing and very meaningful work, talking just as I do with my guests on this show, with the clients there, and trying to help them based on my own experiences with addiction. Centered Health accepts most insurances, and it only takes six clients at a time, so every single kid is getting the most individualized care and attention that they deserve. Their number is 800-234-5599. That's 800-234-5599. And their website is centeredhealth.com. You can also email them for more information at info at centeredhealth.com. Do not put off getting the help that you or your loved one desperately needs, especially in this very crucial stage of life. Pick up the phone now and call 800-234-5599 and see what Centered Health can do to change your life forever today. I highly recommend it. As for me, personally, I'm doing a lot better since I was two months ago on the podcast. I'm much more positive. I've got a little bit of momentum going. I'm charged up, charged up and on and on the go, moving forward and trying to stay on my game as best as I possibly can and whatever on my game means. But at the very least, I can say I'm focused and that's important. Got to stay focused, stay driven and try not to let depression pull you down or whatever your thing is. Might not be depression for everybody, but for me, that's one thing I battle with, as you may know if you listen to the show. But right now... I seem to have it at bay. The depression is at bay. I like that saying at bay. I love the bay. I grew up near the bay. I love the bay. Anything that's at bay. I like fishing. I like Billy Joel's Down Easter Alexis song. Well, I'm on the Down Easter Alexa. And I'm cruising through Block Island Sound. I think his na- he named his daughter after that song. It's my favorite song. I guess he must have liked it, too. I love that song. Tell my wife I am touring Atlantis. Who's he talking to? Hey, uh, you Billy Joel's wife? Yeah, he hasn't been around for a while. Where, where's he been? Uh, he wanted me to tell you that he's, um, he says he's touring Atlantis. What an asshole. I don't know. Seems like a terrible excuse for why you're not around. I'm just telling her I'm touring Atlantis. And I've still got my hands on the wheel. It's a real fisherman's tale. Something so cool about fishermen. I always I always loved fishermen. I used to fish as a kid. I've been obsessed with these mermaid things online lately. I've been looking at all these sightings. People say they saw mermaids, real mermaids. I mean, I think there are mermaids out there. I don't think that they're like uh, like the Little Mermaid where they sing and they want legs and all, but I think they're probably like fish that have very human features, you know? They're probably some some kind of like fish or 
or porpoise-like creature that have like uh, limbs that look almost human. I don't see why there wouldn't be anything like that. That, and when you look, if you if you Google like real mermaid sightings, you see some pretty wild stuff. Pretty wild stuff that that I mean, like some of it's got to be real. I feel like, I don't know. Maybe it's all it's all a hoax. But who puts so much time into making fake mermaid skeletons just to get a photo up on the internet and mess with people? I think it's I think there is some kind of like thing that looks like half person, half fish. The sirens are out there. Oh, I just keep thinking about the sea. Obsessed with the ocean. A little known fact about me is that I worked at the underwater observatory in Elat for a summer. In Elat, Israel, which is on the Red Sea, bordering with Egypt. And it was the happiest I ever was besides doing comedy. The only two things that I can say that really made me feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Or when I'm on stage making people laugh. And when I was in the water taking care of fish. I don't know why, but I feel like I'm an ocean. I'm a merman. I'm a merman at heart, maybe. I love the water. I love the ocean. I worked with sea turtles. I anally injected medication into sea. That was not the glory part of the job. That was not the, the part to brag about. But... I was um, I was doing some good work there. I really also like working with those kids at the Centered Health. You heard the ad for Centered Health that I just said, but I really that that's also very fulfilling. I love working with those kids. It's, it feels like very personal and feels very rewarding. The work I'm doing there. I wish you guys could hear it. It's you can't hear those podcasts, but they're for internal use only at this point. But, I mean, we've had some really great times, me, me and these different kids that come through there. I'll plug it again, Centered Health. If you need it, go. Get the help at that rehab. It's a fantastic rehab facility. It's really amazing. It's amazing what they do there. By the way, are you having problems with your credit? Are you unable to get credit cards or loans? You might be thinking, you're totally screwed. There's no way out. There's no relief. How are you ever going to get a credit card? How are you going to do things? Well, I have good news for you. There's a company that can completely clean your credit up and help you to get new credit cards, clean up your credit score. And I know personally from firsthand experience because they did it for me and they did an incredible job. The name of the company is Renovatio Enterprises and their website is renovationenterprises.com. And what they will do for you is they will give you a no cost, no obligation analysis to determine exactly what's holding your scores down. And in plain English, what that is, is they'll take a look at your credit report and they'll see it's this thing and this thing and this thing. And that's what's holding you back. That's why you have a lousy credit score. That's why you're unable to get the loans you want to get, the credit cards you apply for, whatever it is. They will look into that for you and it'll cost you nothing. Other than a $250 deposit that they take from you at the beginning, you don't pay for anything until the negative items get removed from your credit score, which means, let's say it's $1,000 worth of work because you have a whole bunch of things that are holding your score down. You defaulted on some loans at some point. You were late on payments. They will get that taken off your score, and they only ask for a little deposit so that they know that they're not working for nothing. A 700 or higher credit score in as little as 30 days and they can help get you qualified for new credit cards or unsecured personal loans. 
Go now to renovationenterprises.com or call them at 888-443-2908. That's 888-443-2908. Make sure that you get on top of this. It's important. You want to have good credit. It changes your life. Renovation Enterprises can and will help you if you give them the opportunity. I personally, honestly, truly did, and they did an incredible job for me. If this is something that you need, this is the place to go for it. I'm telling you from my own experience. Okay, get your credit repaired, get your mental health in order, pick up a record, and let's get to the show. What do you think? Business is out of the way. I want you to hear this interview with Dana Gould. Very, very funny, warm, and open, honest guy. I want you to hear this, enjoy it. I enjoyed doing it. I hope you can make it to Broke as a Joke. Only three shows left here in Hollywood, California. I don't do that many shows that I invite people to here in L.A. because most of them, you don't get enough stage time. And I don't want to waste anybody's time coming out to see me for 10 minutes. But this is an hour-long show, and I'm really proud of it, and I think you'll love it. So check out Broke as a Joke. And the Hollywood Fringe Festival going on right now, Thursday night, Saturday night, and Sunday night, the 8th, the 10th, and the 11th. Okay, on to the show without further ado, except for the intro song. Here's my talk with Dana Gould. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Modern Day Philosophers. Modern Day Philosophers. Having failed to pay attention in school, Danny Lobel, now older and wiser, will attempt to learn basic philosophy 101. Our young hero will be joined by today's top comedians, philosophers all their own. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Danny Lobel. Modern Day Philosophers. I'm at the Bird City Comedy Festival in Phoenix, Arizona, and I'm talking to Dana Gould in the hotel room. How you doing, Dana? How are you? Good. I haven't seen you in years. I know. Well, I mean, I've seen you. I saw you at the improv, but I haven't talked to you with microphones in front of our face in years. <laughs> it's so weird when comedians talk to each other without microphones in front of their face. I, I don't like doing I it. I saw two comedians talking, and it wasn't a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> what the? What in the name of? I've had a, I, I've had a few podcast ideas that I didn't launch over the years where I recorded one or two episodes with friends of mine. Really? And uh, they went nowhere. There was just a conversation that we thought was for everyone else, but it was just for us. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> we just ended up talking. It was totally pointless. Yeah. <laughs> what are we doing spending time with each other? Why do people do this? <laughs> it's madness. So you've been doing a podcast now for, for a bunch of years, too. Yeah, my podcast is... I'm just finishing the next episode, literally tonight and tomorrow during the day. And uh, everyone is like recording "Smile" the Beach Boys album. I mean, it's like seven thousand moving parts, hours of editing. Yeah. I don't know why I painted myself into this corner, but I did. Yeah, you, you must like it on some level. You must enjoy it. I like the finished product being something that I would enjoy listening to, and I have a weird sort of uh, production is fun, mm -hmm. but it's a lot of work. <laughs> Yeah, but people like it. You know, it's it's its own reward. So last time you, I'm trying to remember. The last time we spoke was at my original podcast at the at Baruch College. Do you remember that? We're looking at maybe ten years ago. Right. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, it was during the day. Yeah, during the day. Right. I do remember that very well. At the time, you it was were cold that day. You, <laughs> <laughs> 
I remember it was in my winter clothes. I was yeah. In my, yeah, it was in my winter coat. I do remember that. Yeah. You were you were married then, right? You, yes, you, I am. I was, yes. According to Wikipedia. Yes, I, I was married then. No, yes, I was in no New York. Longer. It's no longer, but we, I'm sorry this morning, and we're not... We're not a traditionally divorced couple. My, we're we're still really close. We have three kids together. Right. They live four and a half minutes away. Um, we, four and a half. That's so specific. Well, I do. I timed it because I timed it because when we, you know, we we really protected the kids. The kids. You know the great the best thing about having children is that your life is no longer about you, mm-hmm. and that is a profound relief on many, many levels. <laughs> and when we, you know, we didn't have a giant crazy fight. We just had that sort of like, this doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And we tried to make it work for like two years and it just became uh, uh, diminishing returns. And we decided in January to, to, to end our marriage. And this past January, no, oh. uh, January of 2003. 13. Okay, yeah. I thought it we, was a little while ago. Yeah, we decided to end our marriage, but not our relationship. And we stayed. The kids had no idea anything was going on until June. Mm-hmm. Everything stayed the same. But we were quietly, I quietly bought a house. I set it up, you know. And that way, when we told the kids, there was no acrimony. It was a very family you, thing. You snuck out of the marriage. Well, we, we both did. We both did. But it was very important. What yeah. we did was we told the kids, and then immediately we got in the car and went to my house. Mm-hmm. And they got to pick out their rooms. So we kind of like, don't dwell on this. There's an exciting thing that's going to happen right now. And that worked all right? It, well, we were told it works by experts, and it does work. Um, it's like when people say when, when your dog, your kid's dog dies, get them immediately a new dog. Yeah, I don't know if that's a good idea or not. <laughs> maybe. But this was... Don't dwell on the negative. This is just a different, our family's taking a different form. And I know it was four and a half minutes because I timed it because I was, I wanted to say to them and not lie, I am less than five minutes away. (laughs) You just made that cut off. Yeah. And we did. And we got in the car and I said, I said my phone and I said, we're going to start the stopwatch now. And we were there in 438. Wow. And um, so that was good. Their transition has been as close to, seamless i think as you can do considering it is a goddamn divorce um so yeah no i talked to my wife uh she was the last person i spoke to last night and the first person i spoke to today i mean we so so seamless for them hopefully but yes hopefully yeah how about for you um no i mean divorce is always awful and um it was more the last i don't want to um all of these things are are are, are mutual. I, I think for her and myself, um, the 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 last year was the hardest part up to the divorce. The divorce is actually like getting you're in. It's like a toothache, and you pull the tooth. Mm-hmm. Pulling the tooth is never fun, but then the tooth is gone. <laughs> the toothache is gone, mm-hmm. and you can sort of recalibrate your life. And that's sort of where I think we. Uh, we're at at that point. To give you some context to why I'm I'm asking you specifically about this, it's for two reasons. One, I just got married, uh-huh. so I'm just getting in. And, yeah, and it, well, they don't last all time, end this way, right? Right. <laughs> but, but but I, I your remember, wife is coming up to 
work on your podcast. That's something my wife never did. Yeah. <laughs> no, my wife had a much bigger and more important career than mine. I remember she worked for HBO, you yeah. told me. That's what I remember from the interview you said she had a high level yeah, executive. Yeah, the president of that's, that was her that's position. pretty that's pretty high <laughs> yeah president. that was okay. her position <laughs> how how was that to be married to such a high level industry person it's it's hard not that they are any different but their life is crazy and you know i went to a lot of crazy parties and a, a lot of trips on private you know you just you move into a circle that is great i was profoundly uncomfortable i was never i'm not at ease in the private jet set <laughs> and um some people are and they you know it's it's great it was well, just where not do you my... what do you think it stems from the discomfort where where if you had to articulate what's uncomfortable about it probably low self-esteem and um just being a blue collar working class person who is kind of proud of that that mm -hmm. i mean i have, I have a very i make a nice living and I have a comfortable life and I have a, a really nice house. And right. Um, like you never struck me as a low self-esteem guy. So as you're saying, well, I think like anybody, I think like yeah. any performer, you have that mixture of arrogance and self-loathing right, right, right. <laughs> that yeah. propels you forward. Um, and I did a lot of goddamn therapy. Um, but yeah, you know, there's just that I'm not, I don't, I, you know what? I'll, I'll rephrase it. Although I do have low self-esteem for sure. Uh, a lack of entitlement. Um, I, I'm, I'm not a, um, I don't, it's not my jam. Entitlement's always like one of those really tricky concepts, you know, that I, yeah. I, people, people who accuse people of being entitled, I always wonder if that's a bad thing, you know? It, I think it all depends More, on, on what you, on your attitude and, and how you take it. I just never, um, I, you know, also it was because I was going around, and this will deal with my ego. Um, you know, I have a little fame and a little um, notoriety. Uh, and then you're in a lot of uh, social situations with actors and writers and stuff. And you're just uh, the husband. And, and you're like, no, I got a career. Mm -hmm. You know, what do you do? Right. Um, and, and that gets a little eye rolly after a while. And, um, uh, but my, I mean, my, my, my ex-wife is, is not an entitled person. She's, she's just really good at her job, you mm -hmm. know, and really knows television. And 10 years um, ago, I was on a podcast around the time that you were on mine and, uh, I was accused of being entitled, <laughs> which I, I, I don't know. I think they were trying to get a rise out of me for yeah. good radio or something. But I remember for, for well, there's a lot of anger from radio people yeah. to the podcast people. They, 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 they hit we're hey, driving them out of business. <laughs> yeah. They go, oh, you seem like an entitled guy. You seem entitled, which I, 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 don't I couldn't tell if it was like a riot. It's the only time I've ever been accused of it. But I remember thinking about it for so long, like, aren't I supposed to be entitled to something? You know? <laughs> what do you mean entitled? Yeah, entitled yeah. to what? Entitled, yeah. I, I, I don't have anything. What am I supposed <laughs> to be entitled to? Look at you drinking a whole soda. Yeah. <laughs> like, to what? To being on this show? Two eggs. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't know it's, where they're getting. That. It's got to be healthy to be at least entitled to something. <laughs> if you feel entitled to nothing, no. then 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 you're just a downtrodden guy. Who just, it's all you know. it's all terrible. 
It's all awful. Yeah. So the second reason I brought this all up is because I know Alex, the guy who picks out the philosophers for this show, right. picks somebody around the fact that you have adopted children. And I wanted uh-huh. to talk a little bit about that because it's all very relevant for me sitting here across from you who I remember last time talking to you about your marriage and all the fears I had about getting married and thinking like, will I ever be married? I'm I'm a comic. Can anybody stand me? You know? <laughs> And then, yes. and then you're Clearly, on, yes. you're on the other side of this now, uh, and you know, you seem to be doing very well. Yeah. And I just got into it and now, uh-huh. you know, now my questions are, what about kids? You know, should I have kids? What, uh, well, should- yeah. From me, my opinion, yes. <laughs> um, having, this sounds really cliched and I guess it's a cliche. Yeah. As they say, well, it can't be a cliche. Everyone says it, you know, it's. <laughs> The way I, my, my best friend just had his first child. And it's like the way I look at your life, once you have children, you look back on your life as there was that time where I wasted all that time and then I had kids. And for me, um, and this sort of ties into the other thing, uh, your life has a purpose and a meaning that it never had before. And the, the, the ginormous relief of having children is the realization that, it's not about you. Your life is not about you. But then their life is not about them either. Their life is about them up until they're adults. And then it's not they about are the them. most innately self-centered, narcissistic human beings <laughs> on the face of the earth. I remember talking to my daughter about um I was yeah, um she was uh, she, they loved watching Pee Wee's Playhouse uh, on the DVDs, mm-hmm. and we went. I went to see their show at the Nokia Theater in LA, the live show from three years ago, four years ago, um, with the intention of bringing them. But I wanted to check it out myself first, just to make sure that it was kid friendly. Um, and uh, and I should have known to just ask somebody instead of buying two tickets, uh, buying tickets twice. But uh, I said I'm going to see. Uh, Pee Wee Herman tonight. And her reaction was, tell him about me. <laughs> like, they're just so incredibly. <laughs> and and the, the strange thing is um, my, my wife and I uh, know Paul Rubens. And so we went to the Nokia. We saw the show. Then we brought the kids to the matinee. Uh-huh. And they got to meet him after and sit in Cherry. And the puppeteer was still in Cherry. So when they sat in Cherry, Cherry's arms wrapped around them. And they didn't even flinch. Like, well, of course, it's Cherry. Why, why, would, <laughs> why would they not do this? And then not a month later, we had a charity event at our house. And Paul came over. And my daughter just walks, and she's, you know, at the time she's like nine, she just walks into the front room and sees Paul Rubens, and she just goes, Pee-wee, hi, come on upstairs, I want to show you my room. Like, <laughs> Did he like, go? <laughs> but it's like, to them, it's like, yeah, well, of course, so uh, Pee-wee yeah. comes to everybody's house. So, you know, you, you did tell them about the... <laughs> yeah, they're complete, what I'm saying is they're completely ruined. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, whereas most kids would say, tell him about me, and you go, look, there's no way I'm going to be able yeah, to tell him. I'm not going to bore him with you. But in in your case, you know, the kids, are their opinion is validated. Yeah, but also, like, that's a kid's, you know, a kid's like, who would be cooler for them to know about than me? Right. You know, they're just so naturally. I used to feel like that when I started interviewing comedians. I used to, I think there was a part of me that just wanted them to know about me. Sure, And at some, at some point it switched and... Well, that was a lot of my discomfort on this, you know, my years among the super rich was like, hey, I I was a headliner at 25. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care that you invented steam. <laughs> yeah, like... You were also an altar boy, it said. And, yeah, I was uh, an altar boy. and uh, so, so we both have religious upbringing. So. We have, yeah, and oddly, I... Um, my family, I was raised Catholic, but my parents weren't traditionally Catholic. My Muslim. father was also an altar boy, but he didn't go to church. He just shrugged the whole thing off. My mother was Christian, and my mother was and is uh, uh, sort of a homespun evangelical Christian. And... Uh, by which I mean, like, w when I was a kid, she was really heavy into Oral Roberts. I'm not sure who that is. Televangelist. Okay, I'm Poor a Jew, Billy so I Graham. know. <laughs> right, but, yeah. but I mean, like, not a healthy religious uh, setup. Okay. You know, a carnival, you know, a right. lot of baloney. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we didn't really... None of no one in my family had like a, a healthy exposure to to religion or church. I got into it socially. All my friends were altar boys, so I was one too. So you never Just, had a real spiritual connection in the no. church, no, no, fuck no. But we had a priest in our diocese, uh, a guy named uh, Dennis O'Brien, uh, who was great. Uh, he was a you know we were in high school at the time. I was in like ninth grade. He was in his early thirties, and I, I, I can hear the jokes that people are making. He was the greatest guy in the world. He was completely cool, completely approachable. Called bullshit, bullshit. Um, and before in the, like the two years before we got our driver's licenses, my friends and I, when we were like fourteen, fifteen years old. He drove us around on weekends. Like he would get the parish van and we'd go to the movies and we'd go to get pizza and we'd go to the arcade. And he hung out with us. He was in his early 30s, completely on the level, never a micron of creepiness oh. ever, and was a really positive role model uh, in my life. Uh, I, I, you know. They're not all bad. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it sounds yeah. like it was a positive yeah. experience. He was a great guy. Yeah, he was. He was a great guy. And I remember one day, you know, he would drop everybody off and we were driving. I was the last kid to get dropped off. And I was, we were just chatting and I was talking about like the cool girls in class and how like they're so weird and there's a party. I don't know if I'm going to get invited. Mm -hmm. And he just said, you know, Dana, you have it all over those girls. You know, you don't even realize it yet. You know what you want to do. You have a. You already knew what you wanted to do. I knew what I wanted to do, and, and I had a. Ta I, I clearly had, if not a talent, a rabid enthusiasm, 
And and, he and, was like, and and what it was is what you wanted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I wanted to be like right around fourteen when Saturday Night Live. I started to really watch Saturday Night Live. Like I wanted to be a comedian or a or a com- comic actor or or along those lines. Yeah. I wonder if your mom watching this uh, televangelist performing on stage had anything to do with it. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it was. But but I, but but he, you know, that was really that was a weird positive thing to hear from an adult. Yeah, like a genuine positive thing to hear from an adult. But there's a weird thing about what steered me towards comedy was, you know, there are a couple, a small handful of things in my family where everybody would shut up. I have four older brothers and a younger sister. We lived in a small house. It was, there was always chaos. And one of the consistent, uh, uh, one of the consistent uh, things that would shut everybody up was when, uh, like, everybody watched The Three Stooges, everybody watched The Andy Griffith Show, everybody watched Clint Eastwood movies, everybody watched James Bond movies, everybody loved George Carlin. And when George Carlin was on in the 70s, and he was on TV a lot in the 70s, even in primetime, like, he was on The Tonight Show a lot, but he was on Flip Wilson, he was on Sonny and Cher, like, he was on all of those 70s variety shows. And when he was on, everybody shut up. Mm. And everybody would watch him. And at that time, it wasn't the George Carlin of what people remember as the sort of the screaming, angry uh, George Carlin from the uh, late 80s, 90s, 2000s. Hippie, hippie dippy weatherman. Yeah, it was very sort of uh, stoned out and blissed out. And <laughs> he just seemed like a really nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> like, he seems like a really calm, nice dude. And uh, I remember like he was somebody that I saw as a kid on television. Like, he's funny. He seems nice. Everybody likes him. That, I, can, I like that. And then when I was and then when I was sixteen, my mom took me to see him in a concert. And I just I said, yeah, that's what I want to do. I'll do that. I can do that. Did you get to meet him? Uh, later, not then, but later in life, we actually uh, met several times. Is that yeah. through your wife and the HBO connection? Or? No, not at all. Um, it was I had written him a letter like right out of right when i started out because i was on an hbo special less than a year after i started doing stand-up wow i was on an hbo special called campus comedy that i don't think you can even see now which is (laughs) which is a good thing because i was 18 but his what a what a running start though yeah but that you don't want that that you don't want to start that because it'll just mess you up later. Well, good thing I didn't get it then. <laughs> it's really true. It's but I, I, also on I, the show was um, yeah. Ed Solomon, who went on to become a big screenwriter, wrote Men in Black. Uh, John Michael Higgins, the actor from all the Christopher Guest movies uh-huh. and Pitch Perfect and all that stuff. The guy that played Letterman in The Late Shift. Uh, he was on that special. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, no, there were some there were some funny people on there, and um, somehow whoever produced it knew. George's wife, and somehow I, I spoke with him on the phone, and then I met him backstage at a show, and then years later, we were both in the Aristocrats, the documentary, mm-hmm. and we did like a press conference, and I, I said like you you don't remember me, but when I started out, you were so, it was so great that you were so kind to me, and and he was great, and we became you know then we had a a a nodding acquaintance like if I, when I'd see him again they're hey and hey um, right, which was right. great. He's one of the few people I think that let nobody down when they when they wanted to meet him. And and I yeah you're right. And seeing that was a big lesson. Like I always I mean I'm not comparing myself to George Carlin, but like when people meet me, 
you are aware, like, this moment's not about you. This is all about them. You know, they went up and approached a stranger and started and kind of, like, made themselves vulnerable, like, yeah. uh, you know, and so I always try to uh, to honor that. I met, uh, I only had one kind of, I met so many people that I never thought I would meet. Like Vincent Price, Mark Hamill, Tom Waits, Elvis Costello, Albert Brooks. Like these people that are just in my like Mount Rushmore mm -hmm. of, of entertainers. Uh, they were all great. Uh, the only person I met that was kind of a dick was Eddie Murphy, but it was in 83 mm. when he was Jesus. And like, <laughs> I sort of forgive him. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, he was Elvis Presley at that point. He was he young to be, too in 83. Yeah, he was young. It was on the Delirious tour. It was like, yeah. it was the day I saw him in the Delirious tour. Wow. Just, I saw him in Cape Cod at the Cape Cod Melody Tent. And I was literally just walking down Main Street in Hyannis, Massachusetts, and he was walking up the other way. And I, just, I said, "Hey, I'm going to see, I'm I'm going to see your show tonight. Can't wait!" And he spit his hot ball out at me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, if I had, if I wasn't at the time, I was 19. Uh, if it did it today, I would have went. Well, now I won't. Now I won't. <laughs> you know? and I was like. Are there still people you get excited to meet now? Uh, yeah, porn stars mostly. If, no, I'm kidding. Um, I don't know the porn stars anymore. That's how sad it is. <laughs> I don't think anybody does. Yeah, I don't know. They're all all the ones I know are like you forget. They're also my age. <laughs> they were my age when I watched them, but now they're my age still. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, well, I would. You know, I still like to meet any of the people that I still talk about. That I just, you know, that I looked up to. Uh, so much. I met Paul McCartney recently. That was otherworldly. Where'd you meet him? Uh, when he performed on the Hollywood Boulevard for Jimmy Kimmel. Mm -hmm. Um, my uh, my very best friend who just had a baby. I mentioned earlier, uh, his wife produces Jimmy Kimmel Live, and he we went down there, and uh, and we were backstage at Jimmy Kimmel, and he just points to a door, and he goes, "You see that door?" I go, "Yeah." He goes, "Paul McCartney's gonna walk out of the door in about a minute." And he did, and and it was it's surreal, it's surreal. Just because he's so iconic. Yeah, it's like it's like meeting the Statue of Liberty at a party. <laughs> you know, hi, nice to see you. I want to transition into the philosophy sure. now, but I, I I thought maybe I'd get us back onto the topic of kids, but I don't. What's the point? We'll just we'll just it jump flows, right into it's it. It's a podcast. It flows. <laughs> But none of those people are as important to me as, as my, my children. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, uh, there are these different points in your life, I guess, where where life just completely changes. And you mentioned one of them being having kids, and it becomes yes. not about you. I, for me, just recently, just transitioning into being somebody who's married and yeah. saying things like my wife, which is weird for me, you know? Yeah, the first time you say it, it's really weird. And yeah. Looking at your ring on your hand. It's, it's, it's still shiny, you know? Yeah, it's still shiny. <laughs> still don't, I st my first two days as married, I took it off at night. Like, mm -hmm. I guess you take it off at night. Yeah, and, I was doing that for a few days, too. Yeah, yeah, just, and then, then just like the skin sort of like changes shape around the yeah, ring. Yeah, yeah, I still have the dent. Actually. Yeah. Yeah, I still have a little dent. Do you miss being married at all? I Yeah, I do. I um I do miss being married. It, it's uh, being single 
is the worst. <laughs> um, uh, it's strange. Like you hit a reset button in your life. Yeah, but it's way. like I'm too old. I, I'm I'm very fortunate. I, I'm uh, uh, right after my divorce, I was in a, a relationship for a long time. Uh -huh. um, a, a relationship that started like right in the middle of divorce, and we saw each other for three years. Um, and then that ended, and I was completely like lost. Uh, and I'm just kind of hanging out with somebody again, so it's well, that's good. I'm not good alone. Is it, is it, what's it like? Can you describe the strange feeling of being lost at that age? I mean, well, yeah, I mean, I'm 50, and uh, you know, I've never been on a dating site. Had I not met the woman that I'm hanging out with now, I would have ended up on one. Mm -hmm. Um, but when your time is so valuable uh, between being a single parent of three children and having four careers like I have, mm -hmm. um, taking n nights off to roll the dice, <laughs> you know, yeah. and hope that this person isn't um, is compatible in any way is not really something that is exciting it's more something you dread and <laughs> and just thinking yeah. about honestly just like and i'm very happy to say that it, i never had to put this into practice but moves to get laid you know <laughs> like i don't know any of those like <laughs> act disinterested and right wait 37 and a half hours and then you know it's like i can't do all that i don't have any yeah i don't i don't have the time or the patience for that baloney and you know and i'm just you know i'm i'm really good friends with my ex-wife i'm really good friends with my ex-girlfriend i'm really good friends with my current girlfriend yeah <laughs> you know, it's like i don't yeah i'm good uh I, yeah i i would not know i oh i'd be it would be awful yeah. It would just be awful. Did, is your ex-wife still single now? No, she sees someone as well. She's seeing someone. When neither one of us are remarried. Was there the point where you were both kind of going through that weirdness after after the divorce, and you you, you were able uh, to, yeah totally yeah to talk about it or we didn't talk about it that much because like we don't want to know the vagaries of each other's emotional <laughs> of that level. Um, when you were married, did you get very vulnerable in conversations then, or was it? No, not it wasn't that. No, kind of it wasn't, and I don't know if either one of us were capable of doing that in our time together. We were very much uh, like a team. Like your business, I'm show. This is perfect. <laughs> um, and then, you know, you go through a lot and you, if you're not, um, you know, but, but I, I will say this and I don't like to talk about this stuff too much only because my, my ex-wife is not on a podcast, mm -hmm. so she can't. Fair enough. Um, uh, but this is a mutual thing. I, you know, I, I think by the time we learned how to communicate in a functional manner by that time too much scar tissue had formed mm. and we just couldn't slough it all off and just as i said it just became diminishing returns it was just too hard to do so, yeah that makes but, sense but we but now we we 
she's you know my best friend. We get on great. And yeah, it's it's interesting because as we're talking here at the Bird City Comedy Festival in Phoenix. I am, Any uh, comedy festival named after an animal that shits on your windshield <laughs> is okay by me. Yeah. I'm 33 years old now, just turned 33. And if you fucking who? Right, 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 right. <laughs> For you at 50, you're like, this is not, you know. But I'm, I mean, but, I'm, I'm, I feel 28. Just, my body's 50, but I'm 28. Okay. But, That's the old Frank Sinatra. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're, in, we're here in very different capacities at this festival. You're here as the veteran comic headliner, and I'm here as the up and coming comedian right. tra- trying to like. But the funny thing is, in my grouping, I'm old, you know, I'm I'm 33 and everybody is like 19 and 20 and 22 and really like excited and, and like everything is like (laughs) excited. You you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I do know what you mean. I was, in fact, I was just telling, um, the comic that, uh, was kind enough to pick me up at the airport. I was like, most of my draw right now is, uh, young comics who want to meet me before I'm dead. (laughs) (laughs) And then a small group of people that have to pay to get in. Um, and uh, yeah, no, I I totally get that, and and and, there, and I like, you know, it, it, what's fun is you know you are the group of you are in the group of comics that replaced me, mm-hmm. um, and then these guys are the group of comics that replaced you, right? But I didn't make you'll it. You'll get to with, laugh when they <laughs> have to deal with the ones that are there to replace them. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't make it with my group. You know, my group that were, were here to replace you, they sort of. They they went on to replace you, and then yes. I I I I, 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 I kind of got left behind, and I'm like, all right, where's the group that's there to replace them? Maybe I could join them. That's, but I was never really in a group. I was yeah. never in a group because I because I started so young and had a level of ability at a young age, um, and it came up very quickly that by the time I had moved to Los Angeles in 1989, I was 25. Um, most of my um, peers, uh, my chronological peers were, were miles behind me mm-hmm. developing. Sure. Um, and, and the people that I can see, like, uh, and I'm talking specifically about people who went on to not only become famous, but, but surpass me, like, David Cross and Janine Garofalo and 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 all of those people that I came that I considered my peers that I've known since college that are my age, um, I was like the guy in L.A. working, and they were not working as comedians like I was. I was opening on the road for Jerry Seinfeld, Larry Miller, Bill Maher, Kevin Rooney, mm-hmm. um, uh, Richard Lewis. That generation of comics. All I'm, they think I'm their peer mm-hmm. because we went on the road together in the late eighties and the early nineties. Sure. Yeah. That jump start right out of the yeah, gate. And yeah. I went on the road with them and I knew, and I hung out with them because Kevin Rooney uh, is one of my best friends. And I was, I hung out with them and Patton Oswalt and Janine Garofalo and all those people were behind me. They were opening. And then when I became a headliner, around 1989, 1990, they opened for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that didn't last. Um, <laughs> and then I went to work on The Simpsons, and those guys all went on to their great success. And then when I kind of left the show and went back into doing stand-up, um, I was sort of like a man without a peer group. 
That's why you were telling me it's not good that you got all the early on success. Yeah. Because you think it puts you at a detriment? Yeah, it does. You know, well, one, creatively, you don't really know who you are until you're in your late, you know, like 27, 28. That's mm-hmm. when you start to get a grip on who you are. And uh, you don't want to be really hot really quick and have no perspective or know what it's like to be uh, eat shit and uh, not mm-hmm. get used to eating shit, get used to the taste of eating shit, <laughs> the frequency and the volume of the shit you have to eat. I think um, I'm on the Lewis Black trajectory of like <laughs> nothing traje- until 40. That's a great something. trajectory. That, I don't that's know. a great that's a that, nothing know. wrong with that trajectory. Just, uh, I know people that you know, I know people that had big success right out of the gate and it hobbled them and they were never really able to break through mm. because they didn't have to eat shit and didn't want to go back and start. You know? Yeah. That's that British movie, The Layer Cake. Oh, I haven't seen The Layer Cake. The guy cake. says, uh, it's Michael Gambon talking to Daniel Craig before he was James Bond. And he goes, you know what it is? You go to school and you eat shit. And then you get a job and you eat shit. And then you eat some more shit. And then one day you can give other people shit. <laughs> Welcome to The Layer Cake. <laughs> I'm going to go out and watch the layer cake. It's a great movie. It's a great movie. And that's, I think that's the movie where they said he could be James Bond. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He's really good in it. And that's really, that's really, you know, what it is, you know, but I don't like to make people eat shit. (laughs) Good. Yeah. Why? I I don't think I made anybody eat shit either. No. Yeah. Well, the one, one podcast host once called me entitled. (laughs) Yeah. He's going to get it. He's going to get it. All right. So here's the philosopher Alex picked out for you. Uh Uh-huh. Thomas Sowell. Have you heard of Thomas Sowell? Stillwell or Silwell? Uh, Sowell. Like like you know him so well. Oh, no, no. Uh, I I guess that's how you'd pronounce it. It's S-O-W-E-L-L. Or Sowell? Sowell, maybe. Yeah. Uh, well, he's still alive, which is... Uh, Let's call him. <laughs> we got him on the line. We got him on the line. Thomas, how you doing? He was born in... Uh, he's 85 years old. He was born June 3rd, 1930. And what you have in common with him My is... dad's age. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, what you have in common with him is that you have adopted children, and he's a philosopher who was adopted. Really? Yeah. That's really fascinating. You know, it's very strange... I was not adopted, but I joked incessantly about being adopted. Um, and because I was very different from everyone else in my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in my first special, my first Showtime special from 1991, which just to date it, Starts on a shot of the World Trade Center and then hands down to me. Um, uh, well, you outlasted the World Trade Center. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> or from one pending disaster to another. Um, uh, that in that special, I have a joke about how my mother used to do sing me to sleep, but sing that I was adopted. <laughs> <laughs> my kids can never ever ever see this it's 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 ghastly um i'm not adopted but one of my best friends like said really casually one day yeah i'm adopted like what how long have i known you yeah and um yeah I knew a lot of people that were adopted 
The decision to adopt. What what brought that about? It was it was all my wife's. Um, she read a book called The Lost Daughters of China, which was just about the one child policy and the, you know, the sort of like subtle behavioral genocide that young girls in China were going through in the mm-hmm. end of the 20th century. And that's since changed uh, in China. But uh, she just said to me one day, we were already married. She was like, I don't want to, I don't want to have a biological child. I think we should adopt a, a girl from China. I was like, okay. was it a disappointment to you? Did you want to Not have in a the, biological No, that, that's what I knew. And I said to her at the time, like, you married the right guy. Because I've always felt if there's a child here who needs a parent, be their parent. What's the difference? Right. And I don't need to look at me. I can look <laughs> at me when I shave. My children cannot be more my children. I believe that they were to be my children from their inception. I, I can't not believe that. Right. And... When I talk to people that are like trying so hard to have a biological baby that they're filling their body with isotopes and risking breast cancer and all this, I just can't go there. I understand that it's important to some people. I, I it's like ultimate fighting. I don't get it. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I just don't get it. <laughs> You know, never, I never would have expected that adoption <laughs> is like ultimate fighting or, 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 or filling your body with, uh, you know, all this fertility drugs just to have a biological child when there are millions of children all over the world that I, need parents. I always think it's so interesting how there's so many people who are dying to have a kid and can't, and they're fighting so hard. Then there's all these people who are having a kid and they're dying to get rid of the kid. Yeah. And and uh and kids in orphanages all over the goddamn world. Right. There's people who had kids and nobody wants those kids. Yeah. It's 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 very strange what the way humanity has kind of dealt with bringing new people into the world. Uh, it's yeah, and it's random and there's people fighting, let me let me abort this baby and then there are people fighting, let me have a baby. Yeah. Then there are people saying take this baby and then yeah. they're saying no Get away from my baby. Yeah, there's, it, it's, a- it's, it's absolutely it's absolutely true. There's no rhyme or reason. And, yeah. Uh, there's no rhyme or reason. It's And, uh, you know, like the REM song, like not everyone can carry the weight of the world. Like mm-hmm. you really can't take on all that because you'll drown in it. Mm-hmm. Um, Pete Townsend once described show business, and I would actually say it applies to just the world it's like living in a garbage can full of shit and your main goal in the morning is to keep it out of your mouth Um, (laughs) you've got all these great shit quotes (laughs) (laughs) well the great equalizer uh and dog shit baby shit your shit (laughs) the great equalizer but uh that was always my uh feeling and I, I mean, I understand it's important to people. I, I don't get it. And I also have a very, I guess you'd say passive approach to life. Like I, I do believe like things, things do happen for a reason. And that at a certain point you, you can't fight the world. Like you're, you're, you're not, you know, the, 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 the Christians would say, when 
you know, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think of it in that. I don't think there's a guy with a beard outside of you. Um, <laughs> but I do believe that there are, you know, like my children came into my life, but they came into my life because I was open to it. And that things come into your life when you're open to it, whether you're consciously open to it or subconsciously open mm-hmm. to it. And, uh, you know, getting into another relationship after my divorce was really scary, like a committed, serious relationship. Why was it scary? Just because I had just gotten divorced. And this was, I mean, this was the first person I met mm-hmm. after my divorce. And we were just like, oh, oh, this is going to happen. And you, it was weird for a while. I was like, I, wait a minute. What happened to the chick avalanche I was promised? <laughs> um, and you just, I just had to, you know, you just have to be open to what life brings you and trust that it brings it to you at the right time. How many years were you married, by the way? We were together for six, and then we were married for 12 after that. It's a long time to be six with one 12. person. You, you do the math. I yeah, yeah. I can understand that it would be, <laughs> it would be scary to, to transition to another person. Like right away. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it was, it was but, but, and that person, by the way, is, is, a, is a terrific person. I'm going to read you a little bit about Thomas Soul. Soul or So Well. Or So Well. Uh, Fuel. <laughs> maybe it's Soul, like, uh, like, like, a. Like spiritual. See the soul? Yeah, like, like he's got a lot of soul. Doubt it. <laughs> Do most people get into philosophy, I'm assuming, for the money? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that and poetry. <laughs> <laughs> well, this guy, he got shot right out of the gate. He had an HBO philosophy special. <laughs> he, didn't... he was in the HBO Young <laughs> Philosopher special yeah. that Paula Poundstone hosted. <laughs> He always felt it kind of hurt him because he didn't come up with the other philosophers. That's right. Philosophizing with the. Uh, uh, anyway, he was in. I was just to say that you know Jim Morrison called himself a poet. Poets didn't consider Jim Morrison a poet, uh-huh. but if they did, he would have definitely won the most blowjobs given to a poet award. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably why they didn't accept yeah, him I as think a that poet. Is. I think that absolutely it is too hard on their ego. Michael McClure was not going to let that go so easily. <laughs> Thomas Sowell is an American economist, social theorist, political philosopher, and an author. He is currently senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University. Sowell was born in North Carolina, but he grew up in Harlem, New York. He dropped out of high school and served in the U.S. Marine Corps during the Korean War. I don't, I would, you know, I don't know. Hardcore like, dude. That's a hardcore philosopher. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sir, yes, sir. What's yeah. your philosophy? <laughs> He's not fucking around. <laughs> I believe that <laughs> <laughs> there is a oneness to everything. And blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Sir, <laughs> arms. What are arms? <laughs> Why? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if we're really here, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He received a bachelor's degree, graduating magna cum laude. Loud, 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 loud. I've never, I've never come so anywhere near near the knowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah to know. even, didn't even get close <laughs> enough to pronounce it. I just so happy to graduate at all. Right, and then uh, get out of here. Yeah, go, go work at the water department. I, I walked into the uh, guidance office in college one day, and I said, "What's the quickest way out of here?" And they <laughs> said, "Communications." I said, "All right, sign me up for that." Good to have you on board. <laughs> Are you communications Absolutely. also? Yeah, I I um I was gonna drop out, and I got this 
laugh. But that- being a communications major, it just seemed too redundant. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I, I got this interview on from Laugh.com with Jerry Seinfeld where he talked about how he was going to drop out of college, but he thought it set a bad, it would set a bad precedent for him for life to drop out of things. Yeah, so, so I he can saw, see that. So he saw it through, even though he knew he wanted to be a comedian. And it was that weekend that I was planning to drop out of college, and I heard that, and I said, all right, I, I, I think he's got a point. You know, that that's interesting you say that. I know two people... Um, one, uh, Bill Odenkirk and one Vance DeGeneres. Bill Odenkirk is Bob Odenkirk's brother and Vance DeGeneres is Ellen DeGeneres' brother. Mm. And Bill, I was talking, he was a writer on Mr. Show and we were at a party and I said, so what are you doing? It was like a rap party. And he's like, well, I'm going to go back to Chicago. I'm going to get my, uh, master's. I'm almost done. And I'm like, what is your master's in? And it was it's like chemical engineering, mm-hmm. like what? <laughs> and he, yeah. And I, and I go, what do you go? I've got to just finish my thesis paper and take, he had like six months to get his. Yeah. And I was like, well, then what are you going to do? Because I'm going to come back here and be a writer. And I was like, so why are you going back? And he says, because if I don't, I'll never finish anything. Yeah. Yeah. And Vance DeGeneres, who's like a normal guy, like, you know, like you or I, like was in the Marines. I said, what the hell were you doing in the Marines? And he's like, no, it's, it's good. It taught me how to finish things. Huh. That was really, really interesting. I dropped out of college, and I and I, I regret it. I regret it, but I can't really complain because it kind of worked out. Yeah, My life worked out. Well, things took off really fast for you. Yeah, and then so you didn't really have slow, the opportunity then to slow down. <laughs> well, you could go back now, do a few. Credits. There's your show. <laughs> what do you have left? Like a, a few classes. No, I have a full year. A full year. Yeah, I you literally do, ran out of money. Do it online or something. <laughs> You know, George Carlin. What uh, job am I going to get on the, since that you, I don't already have? You brought up George Carlin earlier as a hero of yours, and he yeah. never went to college. No, I don't think he ever went to college. And I think it really it haunted him for, for many years. Yeah, well, he was also he thrown said. out of the military. I think he was thrown out of, the, was thrown out of everything. <laughs> thrown out of the military. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, it, but, but I remember he told me in an interview that he was always trying to make people think he's smart because right. he didn't do. Because he didn't graduate college. Didn't graduate yeah, college. I believe that. So maybe, smarter than most of them. So maybe it's good not to. Maybe I shouldn't have finished because then I'd have more to prove to people. I don't <laughs> know. Well, you have the beard. You're on yeah. your way. <laughs> uh, so he was uh, the magna cum laude uh, from Harvard University in 1958. He has mm-hmm. a master's degree from Columbia University from 1959. And in 1968, he earned his doctorate in economics from the University of Chicago. He served on several faculties of several universities, including Cornell University, University of California in Los Angeles, and he's also worked for think tanks such as the Urban Institute. It's cool to be part of a think tank. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know what that is, but I do always envision them in a tank. Yeah. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) I do imagine them in a tank. There's no windows. Yeah. (laughs) Just a big... What are they storing their oil? No, smart people have offices in that thing. I wonder if there's anybody who's ever snuck into a think tank by making everybody think they're smart. They're just sitting there quiet <laughs> just, the whole time. Yeah, just rubbing their chin with pipe. <laughs> I could see myself being that yeah. guy. Or Where's just... your ID? <laughs> Hold up your pipe. Go are, on in. Are you thinking? Yeah, I'm thinking. <laughs> look at me. Doesn't look like he's thinking. I'm dwelling. Guy. I'm pondering. <laughs> How come you're not saying anything? I'm just too much thinking. Yeah, there's too oh, much thinking going on here, pal. This, this guy, we need him in the think tank. He doesn't say anything, but he thinks the hardest. He's got to be in there. 
<laughs> He's written more than 30 books, a number of which have been reprinted in revised editions, and his work has been wildly anthologized. He's uh, a National Humanities Medical Recipient, so pretty accomplished guy. Artie farty. Yeah. Uh, he talks about intellectuals as idea workers who have tremendous influence on society. Uh, faith in an intellectual class can lead to blind following, ruining society. So it sounds like he's uh, he's almost against listening to intellectuals. Yeah. Well, that's a healthier attitude than what I thought he was saying. What What, what do you think he was saying? That we all need to look up to intellectuals. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm thinking he's saying the opposite here. I think, but, but he, he might have thought that like in, a, in a think tank where. Yeah, I think that uh, you know, uh, um, bl- 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 blind uh, adherence to anything is not a good idea. Right. I'm going to read you a little bit more about uh, what he has to say about the intellectuals, and then we'll get into some of his quotes in philosophy. So he says some major problems with an intellectual class. One, intellectuals work in ideas, not their application to real-world problems, causing a lack of accountability. An intellectual can condemn a military for quote-unquote excessive force, but does not have to deal with the situation personally. Right. Smart. Yeah, no heart, he's saying. Mm-hmm. All thought, all thought, right. no heart. He's got to be the least popular guy in the think tank. True. <laughs> and he also just described one of the best episodes of Star Trek. <laughs> oh, yeah? Tell me. Where the, two, where the two planets are at war, but they realize that violence is bad, so they have this war where it's like a computer game, and they score a hit, like 50 people from one city have to go into a de- destruction chamber, but they, but they preserve all the architecture and the culture without real bombs. And Kirk goes in, fucks the whole thing up, and they have to start really killing each other or solve the problem. Both things completely in violation of what Kirk's supposed mission was, which is not to interfere with other cultures. <laughs> last Star Trek is just Kirk seeing people that are getting along, but not to his own personal satisfaction. So he fucks up their culture in a big way. That's pretty accurate to, to what we see really happen. Yeah, it's very true. Uh, number two is intellectuals often interpret ideologies in a way that best suit them, uh, disregarding good beliefs. That's what you just said about Kurt, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If it doesn't suit him, forget it. It's not good. Uh, number three is intellectuals have knowledge in their areas of expertise, but they may assume they understand things outside of that. So because they're intellectual, I guess they think they, they're getting things that they're not getting. Is that what he's saying? Yeah, and I think another another way to look at that is, you know, um, I'm a I'm a big liberal like most people in show business. Mm-hmm. Um, but I come from frustrated, angry, blue collar conservatives. And I know a lot of very intelligent leftists who can't conceive of why anybody would vote against their own economic interest, which Mm -hmm. they all do in the case of my immediate family. All of the Republicans in my family are voting against their own economic interest. Mm-hmm. They're voting for my economic interest in terms of taxation. Because they don't understand, they don't have any emotional intelligence or empathy as to these people's perception of the world and the, and the frustration they feel at having people tell them what's best for them. Mm-hmm. You know, Al Gore is the epitome of what a lot of people resent about 
the liberal establishment, which is this sort of, let me tell you how you're wrong. You know, and it wasn't the way he talked to the American people. It's the way he talked to George Bush. The way he dealt with George Bush in those debates where he was sighing and shaking his head is exactly how these people feel when they're being mm. condescended to. And George Bush, who you can say whatever you want against him, and, and we could go all day, but he had a tremendous emotional intelligence for that segment of society. And I don't know how he got it because... He's a rich kid that went to Yale and, you know, went to private school, Yale and Harvard, you know. Yeah. Um, he, uh, but he had a tremendous affinity, emotional affinity for, for that class of people. I feel like he was probably, he probably could relate to them as the person in Yale and Harvard. He was probably like the lower and level it, well, guy, yeah, well, the, the outsider. Yeah. yeah, in his family, yeah. he was the dumb one. So he, I mean, that's not me shitting on George Bush. That's mm -hmm. common knowledge. It, it, in the political conservative world, it was no, Jeb was the smart one and George was the dumb one. And it's um, we don't know why the dumb one became the president. So he had an underdog mentality. So maybe I think that's you're right. The, yeah. I think that's well put. And I probably was really sick of people telling him what he thought and how stupid he was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I bet if you met him, you'd like him. I bet. I'm sure I'd like yeah. him. I'm sure he'd be a great guy to hang out yeah. with. Yeah. Like, I, I met Howard Dean on Real Time with Bill Maher. And Howard Dean said, I really, when we were both governors, I thought it was great. Regular guy. We talked about baseball. I was really surprised at how terrible his presidency was. But it's because he let Dick Cheney do everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, I... But that also probably has to do with that complex that he's not good enough. Right. So, yeah. You know, oh, he, this went, guy seems exactly to know. That's exactly right. Yeah. I went to... Uh, um, real time with Bill Maher. I did real time with Bill Maher several times. I did it with super right winger Charlton Heston, mm -hmm. who was the nicest guy you could ever hope to meet. And I did it with Michael Moore, who was a pissy dick. Mm. You know, it's just I, I don't agree with this guy's politics. I agree with this guy's politics. But on a personal level, right. this guy's a lot funner. He's a lot nice. <laughs> Certainly put me at ease. Interesting. Yeah. Now, well, also, when you did these uh, real times and everything, were you still married at the time? No. Was, some of them were before I was married and then some after. When you did anything on HBO... Uh, when you were married to your wife, can I yeah. can I ask this question? Did, was it ever weird? No. Yeah. No, because my relationship with Bill Maher precedes my relationship with my wife. Mm -hmm. I, I've been friends with Bill since before I had even met my wife. Were so, you ever in a situation where, like, your wife was like, "I don't know if you're right for this thing, but you could you could have gone for it"? And, no, because and for most of that time, I was writing on clash. The Simpsons, yeah. and I really wasn't up for jobs on HBO. Oh, it's 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 interesting to me because I I've just have it's a whole different world to me you know yeah this, I know but it's the same thing it's the same thing with nicer cars yeah <laughs> yeah there's no there's no there's no information that you gain when you get on the the other side of the safe where they're no. like all right <laughs> no but uh, you know I will say you know I'm uh, I'm casting I have a show on IFC that mm -hmm. we start shooting in July. And, you know, I'm in the middle of casting it now. Yeah. And, you know, there are brilliant actors that have come in and read for the role. And I'm just like, you, 
you're just not right for it. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're a great. You know, I don't know if you know who Clancy Brown is. No. He's a big voiceover actor. He's Lex Luthor. Okay. He's Mr. Krabs on SpongeBob. And oh, he's wow. in a, if I showed you his picture, you go, oh yeah, him. He's the guard in the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, he's uh, he's been in everything. And he's my neighbor. He's literally my next door neighbor. Mm-hmm. I see him almost every day. Two, two and a half minutes away. Yeah. And he, <laughs> yeah. And he auditioned for the role. He's like, do you mind if I come in and audition? I go, yeah, I'd right. love you to come in. And he wasn't, he's not, he's like, you're, you're. Is you that know, a tough position for you to be in? It's awful. I fucking hate it. <laughs> I fucking hate it. Yeah. But they know. I mean, he goes, no, I get it. I was like, no, you're great. It's just not, he goes, no, I know. It was okay. fun to do. Yeah. So the next one is number four, intellectuals can rely on verbal, uh, let's see if I say this word right, virtuosity. Yeah, I think that's right. Mm-hmm. Verbal virtuosity, clever phrasing, which is like snark and et cetera, instead of evidence and logic. I wouldn't have thought that of intellectuals. I would have thought they would have been more leaning on evidence and logic. But he's saying they re- rely on verbal virtuosity. Mm-hmm. Maybe they feel they're too smart. They already know. Right. And intellectuals may have acquired these traits from politicians or it may have been the other way around. So how much faith can we have in people whose job it is to be smart? Said from a man in a think tank. Yeah. Interesting. I, I like it. I like this guy too. Um, I have a, uh, a paragraph for you to read, and then we'll, we'll see if we can sum up what he's saying there. I dig this, dude. Those whose careers are built on the creation and dissemination of ideas have played a role in many societies out of all proportion to their numbers. Whether that role has made those around them better off or worse off is one of the key questions of our time. The quick answer is that intellectuals have done both, but certainly it is hard to escape the conclusion that intellectuals have made the world a worse and more dangerous place. Scarcely a mass-murdering dictator was without his admirers or apologists among the leading intellectuals. Intellectuals are people whose end products are intangible ideas, and they are usually judged by whether those ideas sound good to other intellectuals or resonate with the public. Whether their ideas work is another question entirely. Interesting. That's very true. Got to be the least popular guy in the think tank. Yeah, not a lot of people jamming on him. (laughs) You know what he is? He's like the Ramones of philosophers. He's like, this is not hard. This is not hard. That's, That's why a great I love reference. Him. Yeah. It's like this is don't don't yeah. make this don't make this harder than it is. Yeah. I had a great my acting teacher when I was learning how to really act said uh yeah the hardest part of this job is getting over the fact that it's not that hard. <laughs> yeah, you can, you know, fart it up a lot, but it's it's not really that hard. <laughs> I, I we have some quotes here. So Dana, are you are you ready to read these quotes? I am. All right, let's do it. First one, a bullseye. Intellect is not wisdom. Many smart people are very dumb. Uh, You've come across that yourself, and <laughs> oh, if you can believe it, if you can believe it, yeah. Um, as George Stiegler said of some Nobel laureates, they issue stern ultimata to the public on almost a monthly basis, and sometimes on no other basis. Which means they're in the business of issuing ultimata, whether they know what the hell they're saying or not. Right. So they just, they're just they just trying to basically make you feel like... They're gas bags. Yeah. 
Completely true. <laughs> Again, that's a knock on professional intellectuals, on the on what would be called the mandarins or the chattering class. Mm-hmm. Look, this was something that Nixon said, and you talk about an you know an anti-intellectual who was, by the way, a paranoid moral dwarf, uh, to <laughs> quote George Carlin. But uh, yeah. he was right about one thing. It was the so-called best and the brightest that got us into Vietnam. Mm. You know, it was the it was the mandarins. It was the quote the group of advisors who put America into Vietnam were called the wise old men. So who should we listen to, idiots? According to this guy, like I think what he's saying is that intellectuals don't don't mean wisdom. That just because you're smart, it doesn't mean you're wise. The wise person, well, the wise person would have realized that Vietnam was not winnable and that we could lose and admit defeat, and pull out, and we would not crumble as a nation. Mm -hmm. Um, They were not able to make that leap, because at a certain point, your own ego is involved. And uh, admitting that you are wrong, whether it's uh, in fighting a war or uh, uh, advising a war, uh, is among a lot of people's pay grade. It comes back to ego again. Yeah, it's hard to admit. Yeah. It was hard for a lot of people to admit they're wrong. They asked again. Now, a, now a, a knock against George W. Bush. They asked him to name his biggest uh, mistake or failure as a president. He couldn't think of one. You know, it's yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's called clinical narcissism. Um, and the last quote is uh, uh, Sowell on tactics used by intellectuals. One sign of verbal virtuosity is the repackaging of words to mean sometimes the direct opposite of their original meaning. Freedom and power are among the most common. That's absolutely true. That, and I just tweeted this two days ago. You, you just tweeted what, what, what so well? Or? I did, two days ago. <laughs> I did. I said that the Freedom of Religion Act in North Carolina proves my point that nothing says you're going to get fucked more than when a bunch of politicians start throwing around the word freedom. Anytime somebody talks about freedom, uh-huh. you are going to get drilled. Whether I, it's freedom from debt, freedom from fear, freedom from... Yeah. They, you are about to get screwed. Right. Um, and the, the religion, no more so than when you mix together the, the dueling banjos of bullshit, freedom <laughs> and religion. Um I and, see the the Carlin influence is still strong in you. Yeah, it is. I mean, he was definitely <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, a big formative uh, voice for me. Yeah, and uh, and power the same thing. You know what people think is real power, and what is not. So so that's that's the trick of the intellectual is to to get you on board with some with their agenda, right. By making you think it's it's yours. Yeah, and that's well, kind that's, of what you were talking about with your family members. Sure, that's exactly yeah. right. I'm for you," said the billionaire. and you can't explain it because it's emotional it's interesting that you you you, can't reason with them because it's an emotional belief you kind of have this very different perspective than the rest of your family because you've also dipped a toe into the private jet world yeah you've seen you've seen the other side right and then when you go back to the blue collar guys now you don't really fit in there either because right you've so so you're in this. It's just like with comedy. I don't really have a peer group. Yeah, kind of in my own little, you can my own little bubble. Tin you on as a lone wolf. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. I hate to say it. 
It's interesting though. It's a it's a it's an interesting perspective on the world to have. You know, you're not fitting into anything quite. But uh, I'm I, sorry I feel like to I, say I, you're right. <laughs> I feel like I relate to it. <laughs> <laughs> you could be part of the group of people that don't fit into groups. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. So uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank, thank you very much. It's thank, really nice to talk to you again. Thanks. Good talking to you too. And and your podcast is called the Dana Gould Hour. All right, and and people got to go check that one out too. Never an hour. <laughs> How many hours go it's into one Dana Gould? Oh, I Gould can't talk. But it all it usually comes in at about two and a half hours. Yeah, it's like a Dana Gould month goes into a Dana Gould hour. That's exactly right. <laughs> that true. Thanks so much, man. All right. All right. Once again, centered health centeredhealth.com if you need help with treatment please go and check them out centeredhealth.com go and check out renovatio enterprises renovatioenterprises.com if you need your credit repaired standuprecords.com for all your comedy needs and thank you guys for tuning in thanks again to dana gould for being on the show. All right, everybody, thank you again for tuning in. If you're new to the show, thanks for finding the show. Please tell people about the show. Enjoy the show. Rate the show. Put five stars up on iTunes and a nice review. It really means a lot, and it helps the show out a lot as well. And you can always write me at thecomical at yahoo.com. Thecomical at yahoo.com. I read them all. I write back, and uh, I would love to hear from you. Let me know what you think of the show, of life, of me, of you. Of anything, say hello. And that's about it. The website for this podcast that you are tuned into once again is moderndayphilosophers.net. On that website, you could find links to buy seasons one and season two of this show. You could donate to the show, which is a great thing you could do to show support. You could show a lot of support. You could go to the GoFundMe. I'm trying to raise money for this Edinburgh Festival, which is a ton of freaking money. And got a show called Broke as a Joke. So that ought to say it all. I'm bringing a broke show to an expensive festival. So if you can help, click the GoFundMe. And if you want to come and see me in Hollywood, California at the Hollywood Fringe Festival, I feel like Robin Williams right now. Hey, who? look, who? What's this? I have a show at the Fringe. Come and see me. Oh, uh, all right. That is also up on the website. And you can click that link for tickets. Click the link for tickets. It's up there. It's it's live, it's active, it's buzzing. Come and see me in the Hollywood Fringe Festival Thursday night, the 8th, Saturday night, the 10th, or Sunday night, June 11th. So much going on. Uh, I don't know, I just wanted to say that part. So much going on, so much action. Everything is electric over here. You wouldn't believe it. I'm telling you, it's everywhere. I don't know what voices I'm even doing. I'm just having fun. It's late at night. I'm recording this in my kitchen, and uh, what do you want from me? Okay, all right. Do me a favor, okay? Now it's becoming a little bit Joe Pesci. I don't know, but do me a freaking favor. Go send me an email, like I said, to thecomical at yahoo.com. I don't know. It's sort of morphing into another voice completely now. It's a little Russian. But please send me an email. Say hello. Put the nice rating. Everything what we said. Huh? Can you do it? Please, 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 please. All right. I don't know. I, I became a begging Russian person. I'm tired. It's late at night. I'm going to bed. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. Hope you enjoyed it. Bye-bye, everybody. Goodbye now. So long. Bye.